Hey there, everybody, and thank you so much for listening in today. This is your host, Bryce Boyer, and welcome to the Nexus Thought Podcast. This episode is number one with Sarge Goodchild, a good friend of mine, and somebody who I personally see as a mentor as well as a friend. Uh, Sarge has been doing this incredible work for years regarding people's well-being, but his speciality is with helping mostly kids and some adults who have suffered from poor neurological development stemming from a limitation of functional movement uh, and also toxicity in the early years of their life. So I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you all. Uh, Within this conversation, there are some controversial topics, topics that I personally feel are important to be able to discuss and have dialogue about. I think that uh, neglecting having conversations about hard to talk about things can be um, can be detrimental to not just a society but to a person's under holistic understanding of a situation and for those of you who don't know the definition of holistic it simply means taking into consideration the whole picture uh, rather than just choosing these little nitpitty pieces So this episode is being sponsored by my company, Transmute Healing, located in Beverly, Massachusetts. I have both virtual and in-person services available, Uh, anything from location-based electromagnetic field assessments, red light therapy, and substance-specific laser uh, treatments for allergies, to holistic massage, health coaching, and energy work. There is a lot on offer at Transmute Healing. So... If you are interested in supporting me in the future of this podcast, please consider checking out www.transmutehealing.com. Now, this is the first of many planned episodes for the Nexus Thought Podcast, where I will be interviewing and sharing conversations with some truly incredible people that I have had the honor of crossing paths with. I'm just thrilled to be here, and I hope you are as well. Uh... So without further ado, let's hop right into episode number one. In the beginning, we're going to be talking about health freedoms and how people should have the the right to choose what goes into their bodies. In the middle, we talk more in depth about Sarda's work with children and the uh, functional movement and neurological development. And in the end, we're, we go into our philosophies on life, death, well-being, among many other things. So it's a great talk that we have lined up. Uh, do enjoy and uh, hope that you have a beautiful time, whatever you may be doing right now. Just take a nice, slow, deep breath and enjoy the podcast. We're doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we on? We're on. We're on. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. So. Tell me, first, why am I here? <laughs> well, God, I don't know, Bryce. It was, uh, you walked into this office quite a few years ago. Um, and honestly, there is a lot about you that reminds me of, that reminds me of me many, many, many years ago. Um, and so I find the work that you do remarkably interesting. I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of mutual respect for one another, and I'm certainly glad to to share some time with you tonight yeah. on this podcast show. 
interview interview whatever, whatever we're gonna call it <laughs> yeah yeah i uh yeah absolutely i feel i feel the complete same and you know it's it's interesting because i feel like um when i uh when i first heard about this place i remember i was working at the in the computer job which is the job that's kind of sent me in some way like on my health journey yeah and i just remember them telling me about you and they're like oh yeah he's on all the weird same shit that you are <laughs> you should go talk to him and i'm like all right and i drove by here so many times and eventually i just i just walked in and i'm like what's up <laughs> yeah and yeah. you've come up you've in the in the i don't know how long ago that was it was over four years ago i'm guessing so i i it was on the butt end of that job i was 21 or 20 so actually yeah it was around like three years ago something something like that i think yeah but and it's been fun to watch you grow over those three years i've really you've learned a ton you've got a tremendous amount more offerings now you're set up out of a out of an out of an acupuncturist office new harmony wellness yep. and i love bren he's been a great resource for me personally for my family he's been a great resource for a lot of my clients of course eric brooks is working out of there now and right. i have a long history with his sister dr courtney neal yeah. who's a chiropractor so you've really become embedded in a wonderful community it it certainly feels like it and you know, just looking around at how the North Shore has grown. I mean, from when this journey started for me till now, you look at, for instance, like downtown Beverly and Cabot Street, Salem, uh, even in Danvers, there's just all of these holistic wellness places popping up all over the place. There's just more awareness about this stuff. It's like it's common talk. You know, it's not as like woo woo or as out there as it may have been, you know, even five years ago at this point. Well, I think I think that um, nature always seeks balance in everything it does. You know, when there's when there's when the sun starts going down earlier and the days get shorter, the the trees shed their leaves so that we can take advantage of all the light that is out there for us to offer. Yeah. And when the days get longer and the sun's up brighter and stronger, we get the shade of the trees. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we're seeing in holistic health right now is um, a desperate need to balance with the sort of what I consider to almost be an onslaught of pharmaceuticals mm. and the desire for the pharmaceuticals companies to really have dominion over the human body and, um, and use us like their personal ATMs and there is a there is an awakening that's taking place and i think it's in large part just a counterbalance to what's happening in the allopathic world yeah absolutely it's um i want to i want to talk to you about your personal experience with sort of um the organization that you had just mentioned them a few minutes ago Health Choice Massachusetts and Health right. Choice for Action. Yeah, and just generally, generally speaking, how sort of health uh, health rights are being taken away, at least in, if not in Massachusetts, in, in America or even in the world as a whole, and sort of pick your brain on on that whole 
that whole realm? Well, I think that the the pharmaceutical industries and the uh, the members of uh, the legislators who are who are um, either beholden to them or um, sympathetic to their desires are trying to leverage children's education right now as a way to force more parents into vaccinating their kids. Mm. Um, and education is a remarkably important aspect of being able to live a fulfilling, healthy life Absolutely. and being productive the rest of your life. And when we begin to um, coerce medical procedures by holding by holding education hostage, we are harming a huge segment of the population. Um, and there's never a time, and there never will be a time, which a child's right to an education should be held over their head to get them to submit to doing something that is either um, against their religious beliefs or against sane medical practice. And it's really, there is a national push right now by um, the medical industrial complex to, to get as many um, children vaccinated as possible. And beyond the using education as a coercive force. We are seeing medical doctors um, who are very afraid of assigning exemptions to children because they are the way their practices are being managed and um, the way that they get under a microscope when they start doing that, they're not comfortable handing out medical exemptions. So you could have you could have a brother who got an immunization on the CDC recommended schedule and had a horrible adverse reaction to that to that medical event and perhaps he ended up with seizures perhaps he regressed into autism perhaps he developed um Guillain-Barre syndrome, I never pronounced that right, um, or many other things. No parent in their right mind having seen that happen to one child is going to want to go ahead and vaccinate their other children because they're going be, to be hesitant. They're going to recognize that within their family, there is fragility. Yeah. There and that these things have real consequences that can last a lifetime. And yet medical doctors are not writing exemptions for kids whose brothers and sisters have been seriously hurt mm. following administration of vaccines because they're worried about what it's going to mean to their ability to continue practicing medicine. Regardless of the fact that these people might have like a genetic predisposition or you know, yeah, like if there's like a sign that they might have some type of an adverse reaction, it should be their responsibility above all else to say, all right, well, let's explore this and see what we can do, but not 
force them into a situation, especially not when threatening education or really any any sort of like privileges that we have here. It's it's just it feels very slimy. The whole thing just feels like a a whole scheme and uh yeah. It's it's unfortunate, you know, and there are representatives and there are senators out there right now who are attempting to remove um attempting to remove rights. They're attempting to remove um religion as an exemption in um, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts right now. So Representative Vargas submitted a bill about, I'm going to say, just over a year ago, which would have ended religious exemptions. Um, Health Choice Massachusetts and Health Choice for Action, um, as well as some other uh, groups, put out a very well-thought campaign in which we went in and we educated individual legislators about what the impact would be on specific families. And we specifically talked about um, about disenfranchised families, families living in Lowell and Haverhill mm-hmm. and New Bedford, um, where, you know, Representative Vargas used to like to say that well, if you don't want to get your child vaccinated, you can just choose to homeschool them. But there are many families out there who that's not a logistical choice that they're able to make. Right. They have a, when, when you present that choice to them, you're presenting what you're really presenting is you either get your child vaccinated or you lose your house. Mm. You lose your ability to put food on the table. Mm you lose your ability to pay your utility bills, right? That's not a choice. That's an illusion of choice. And that is not that is not a fair and equitable way, especially in the state of Massachusetts where we have the highest vaccination rates in the country. Right. Um, and so Vargas's bill failed and it was swiftly followed by a bill that was put together, was... Um, put together by Senator Rausch and uh, Representative Donato called the Community Immunity Act. And while those would have preserved um, religious exemptions, it would have put a tremendous amount of restrictions on those exemptions. Um, And it would have allowed private schools, the Community Immunity Act would have allowed private schools to have put in place stricter rules than what the state of Massachusetts expected of public schools. Hmm. So private schools would have been allowed to deny children for any reason, religious or medical. Mm -hmm. And that would have been absolutely fine with the state. Hmm. Um, And that's obviously, that's tremendous overreach. Um, And what what we're talking about is... um, we're talking about 1.6% of kids in the Commonwealth who are not who are not vaccinated fully. Wow. And there are much better ways of addressing that gap than by coercing it through education or by removing religious exemptions. Right. Um, w- through the research that we've done, 
what what has been found is that a lot of that gap there's a there's this gap where these kids maybe their records maybe they've come in from another state and so their records aren't complete they've come in from another country their records mm-hmm. aren't complete or they're living at the poverty line or below the poverty line and they simply haven't had access to vaccines because both parents are working jobs one might be working a day job the other might be working a night job and there's no time to get the child to the pediatrician. So there's actually much better ways for the Commonwealth to increase um, their their vaccine uptake without these coercive measures. And the Commonwealth really needs to start looking at that stuff and addressing it um, rather than trying to, um, to put in legislative procedures that infringe upon our rights as citizens. I was having a conversation with you the other day, which sparked several other conversations with some of my friends about it's similar to sort of how the church should not be involved in politics, right? It's like we should, it's becoming common ground for all of these, um, all of these different, you know, sort of uh, areas of our government to start sort of leeching into everywhere and everything and in turn what you see is all of these rights being taken away one by one and the more that it happens the harder it is to stop because there's so much legislation and there's so much um of a wall in the way of change actually happening that it just becomes harder for the people to make the decisions and it becomes easier for people who make policies to implement what they feel is right it's um, the pharmaceutical industry outspends um, outspends defense lobbyists. I think by two and a half times. Wow! They outspend um, oil and gas. I know the, by multiple times. I think the biggest right now is is tech, maybe energy, tech or energy, and then meta. It's not. It's the pharmaceutical industry outspends mm. everyone else on lobbyists. I. I can't. I don't want to quote the number because I'm sure I'll get it wrong. Mm-hmm. But there's multiple lobbyists for every member of Senate and Congress mm-hmm. on the pharmaceutical side of things. That's a lot of, of pressure. It's an they... enormous amount of pressure, and it's an enormous amount of money. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, it's effective. It's uh, it's effective because it. I think on one hand, it fulfills a need. You know, like there's. As as a, as just a consumer in the United States, we're exposed to enormous amounts of medical propaganda, enormous amounts. So we see it in the television ads that we see on television. We see it in whenever we're flipping through a magazine. We see it, we hear it on the air, mm. right? It's it's in NPR. It's in the BBC. They're funded largely by pharmaceutical industries, right? right? Um, and it's, it's a message that a lot of Americans are happy to hear. It's mm. because it's a simple fix. Right. Take this pill and your pain goes away. Take this pill and your diseases. Right. So it's relatively easy for legislation to get a grip mm. because so many Americans are willing to literally and figuratively swallow that pill. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, that we have to be incredibly careful about preserving these rights because there's not as many of us who are willing to take action 
and go and meet with senators and meet with representatives and explain to them, you know, there are approximately 9,000 bills that become before a senator or a representative in one legislative year. Hmm. That's a heck of a lot of bills. Yeah. We cannot expect any individual to be an expert on 9,000 bills no. and be able to make really informed decisions. Never mind read all of them. It, it's, some of these bills are hundreds of pages long, right? And even the ones that aren't are incredibly complex. Mm. And on the surface, a lot of these bills will seem like they're great ideas. Right. You know, um, one of the bills that um, that we were able to defeat this year was um, the there was a um, bill that was put before, I believe Mark Lewis was the author. He may have only been a sponsor. Um, but it would have allowed minors to consent to um, preemptive medical procedures. Hmm. And it was it was about a minor's ability. You know, say you've got a 14-year-old boy or a 14-year-old girl and, um, and they're gay. And they're, they're out there. They're in the world. They're having consensual sex. But dad at home is not particularly happy that his son or his daughter has chosen this lifestyle and maybe is even abusive or borderline abusive. That child's not going to feel comfortable going to his father and saying, hey, dad, I'd like to go to the medical doctor and um, there's a drug that will prevent me from acquiring AIDS. And it, it dramatically reduces my ability to transmit AIDS should I ever get it. That child's not going to be able to have that conversation with parents who are in a certain mind step. Mm. And this bill would have allowed that child to go to the medical doctor and get a, get a medicine that allowed him to, you know, to go about his day and practice his life in the way that he wanted to. Right. On the surface, it's a great bill. No one wants to take that away from that child. But the way that the bill was structured, it put no, it put no floor on what age a child could consent to preventative medical care. Mm. And in the past, and still today, what we have is called the Mature Minors Act. Um, and the Mature Minors Act means that if you're a minor, you are allowed to consent to medical care if you meet one of three qualifications. You have to be serving in the military, you have to be a parent yourself, right? So you could be a 15 or 16 year old parent, mm. um, or you have to be legally emancipated from your parents, right? And then you can consent to medical care mm. without, without a parent's knowledge. And it can be sealed and private and right. everything else. The way this bill was structured, it would have allowed a two-year-old to go into a doctor's office and somehow, even a one-year-old at six-month-old, there, no, there was no floor, and somehow expressed to that doctor that it felt that it was in danger of getting a communicable disease. And the doctor could right then and there give that child 
an immunization against that disease. It would be held privately in a sealed record that the parents never knew about. So now imagine that child goes home, has an adverse event following that vaccination. The child isn't going to tell the parent because the child's too young and doesn't understand that there's a correlation. The doctor's not going to tell the parent, right? Because they're going to probably say, oh, uh, it's something else. It would be violating this rule, right? Right, right. And so the parent has no idea how to treat that child or how to seek care for that child because the parent has no knowledge that this has been done. It's a, there's a huge, huge ethical problem with that. Mm. And it gets worse because minors aren't allowed to sue in court for dam- medical damages done to them. Only parents can. Mm. And you're denying parents that right by keeping this information in a sealed envelope. So there's all sorts of, so when you start picking apart these bills, you start realizing, and I'm just mentioning one of 40 reasons to oppose these different bills. But when you start picking apart these bills, you find that there's just tremendous um, ramifications in the way these bills are, repre- are, are being put forward. And the, the legislators who I've sat with when I go and I sit in a senator's office or I sit in a representative's office, they're not expecting someone who's going to come in and educate them in a, in a calm, collected way with, with lots of graphs and lots of data and printouts from the CDC and the NIH and the Pentagon and et cetera, right. and lay it all out in front of them and explain. They're expecting someone who's going in there with kind of more of a juvenile attitude. This like emotional right, outburst. Right. Kind of, and yeah. is screaming about whatever, whatever, right, whatever they they're want. screaming about. Yeah. And that's what most of our legislators have been prepped for. Right. Um, now, fortunately, because in the Commonwealth we have the highest vaccine rates in the country, it turns out that <laughs> a lot of the lobbyists are not going after mm our legislators, because they figure they've got Massachusetts is all wrapped up and packaged with a bow on it. Right. You know, they're pretty happy with their numbers here. We're number one. Mm. Right. So there's not a lot of reason for them to spend a lot of money and a lot of time in the state with the highest vaccine uptake. Right. And that's working to our favor as well. Right. You know, and we'll see how long that lasts. Sure. Um, But I'm, I'm really proud. I'm a very, very, very small cog. Mm. There are women um, at Health Choice for Action who are working tirelessly day in and day out. And, you know, I pop in and I help wherever I can. But compared to the efforts that they're putting forth, my efforts are trivial. Mm. Uh, but I am nonetheless extremely proud to be a board member of this group how, who has achieved just, I think, I think that health choice is really changing how advocacy is done across the board. Mm. And we've got other states now coming and, and asking us how we're doing these things. I mean, in the middle of COVID, we had over 200 cars circling the state house for three hours, blasting horns with signs all over the place, um, and really, really getting legislators' attentions. We did it while they were in session. 
we just came off a protest in which, um, God, I can't remember how big the numbers were. We had well over 1,200 people mm. attend a protest at the state house. Um, I think maybe it was 1,600. It was a large number of people um, about um, about the flu mandate. We have we have had um, children's visual days. We have had we had a day of action in the middle of COVID when we wanted to social distance because we are concerned about people's health. At Health Choice for Action, we um, we have lots of members who think that masks are unnecessary. We have a lot of members who feel that masks are very necessary. Pretty mixed among, across the board. Across the board. Yeah. But what we generally agree on is that according to, um, I might be getting this a little bit wrong, but for anyone who wants the information, I'm happy to provide it. We can maybe put a link in if we're going to sure. do that sort of stuff. But um, Harvard Pilgrim Health was contracted, I believe, by the National Institutes of Health to data mine their information and find out um, how many how many clients they had in their system. They're a huge, obviously Harvard Pilgrim is a huge, they have a ton of people in their system. Right. And they did a data mine, basically, is what I call it. And they looked and they tried to determine how many people had have adverse events within their system following the administration of a vaccine. Mm. And it came out to 2.6%, hmm. right? So at Health Choice, we feel that between two and 3% of the population is at risk for an adverse event following a vaccine. Right. This and isn't one in a million. It's a much bigger number than that. Right. And it needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna ask the general population to take our 2.6% seriously, then we need to take the one to 2% who are at, you know, at risk of contracting and having an adverse event following COVID. We need to take that one to 2% as seriously as they're taking our 2.6%. Right. Do you, do you feel that that number is actually higher, but a lot of these just weren't ever documented because people wouldn't have associated after effects of these things. So I think that's a very tough, I don't, I don't like to play that game, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I like to deal in the numbers and what we know. Right. And what we know is that somewhere between two and 3% of the population is at risk of a seriously adverse event following mm -hmm. a vaccine. Um, and I like to stay grounded in that number. For sure, yeah. But that said, we know that um, adverse events following vaccines are massively underestimated. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a very good chance that that, that that number could be higher. Right. But we know it's 2 to 3%. Well, so, like just this whole conversation in general, what's really amazing to me about it, and I'm grateful to have these conversations with people, because if you go to like just your average Joe, and you start talking about this stuff, you're almost immediately denounced. It's almost like you're immediately t tagged with all these things, conspiracy theorist or, um, you know, woo-woo or like a, um, a, a quack, just something along those lines. My least favorite term, anti-vaccine. Yeah, right. An anti-vaxxer. Yeah. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. 
I'm an ex-vaxxer, right? And most of the most of the unbelievable men and women who are a part of this whim, of this movement, they're not anti-vaxxers. Right. They're ex-vaxxers. Yeah. And and their kids are like the frontline soldiers. Their kids are the ones who are coming back from combat wounded mm. and then being discarded and forgotten. And their brothers and sisters are the one that we're discriminating against and we're trying to segregate. We're trying to keep them out of school. And people really need to understand that these are not, these are not people who are anti-science. We've got unbelievable medical doctors and scientists. I've seen some of the stuff that it's they post. Phenomenal it's phenomenal really stuff. Is. It's yeah. very in-depthly researched. Um, we were, Nicholas Cottonsat, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, mm -hmm. he has a very seriously vaccine injured daughter. He did an incredible piece um, that was picked up by one of the Worcester, local Worcester papers on how many people need to be vaccinated in order to prevent one flu illness. And the numbers, I won't quote the number, we can put that study sure. into the link, but it's a really high number. Mm. And to prevent one hospital visit, that number is, I think, 10 times greater still, mm. right? And yet, according to um, the Pentagon put out something called the Cochrane Paper, and if you get vaccinated, you are 36% more likely to have a flu-like illness, what they call an FLI. So by, by putting this flu mandate into place, we're not decreasing the load on the local hospitals. We're actually making it significantly harder for them to determine who's got COVID and who has a flu-like illness. Right. The um, and and we're doing it with the kids that we know we can coerce into it mm. by holding education over their parents' heads. Right. Mm. We're not doing it with the teachers. We're not asking the adults. We're asking people through graduate school to do this. Charlie Baker has um has come out and said he considers anyone under the age of 30 to be a child. Hmm. Hmm. We, we may have a little there's issue a, in our studio. Yeah. <laughs> there's a dog. <laughs> there's a dog who is uh, directly underneath our lighting right now and, and might shift things around <laughs> just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> she looks like she might want to go out. Oh, uh, yeah, she might. Um, I don't know what we do in this situation, but That's there good. it goes. The yeah. <laughs> do you want to take a, do you want to take a yeah, yeah. two minute break? Yeah. Are we able to do that? Yeah, let's take a break. Round two. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, yeah. So going back to the whole, the anti-vaxxer conversation and I, I remember, so I was on the fence about it for a long time and I saw good and bad and I was just feeling very ambivalent about sort of making any sort of decisive movement because I feel like it's such a polarizing thing, right? It's like you're either one or the other to so many people 
it's very difficult to have a neutral conversation where you're just like, I don't really know. And I just want to hear both sides of this. And so what I did at one point was I decided that for an entire, like, you know, I'm more in like the holistic realm of things. And so generally speaking, the population of people that I'm spending time with, that I'm talking to, most of them veer on the side of like the informed consent and you know, health advocacy and just health freedoms and, and all of that, which, you know, in my in my personal opinion, like I love all of that stuff. I think that we all should have the right to choose what's going in and out from our body. Well, in our bodies, at least <laughs> what comes out is freedom is predicated on the on the ability to choose. Right. Right. Yeah. And so when we lose that, then there's no freedom. Yeah. What I had done was. I said for two weeks, I'm not going to search anything related to holistic wellness. At this point, I already had a couple of books that I was reading and stuff like that. But I wanted to make sure that my online footprint was entirely almost the opposite of where I would normally look, which is, you know, very, um, very like pharmacology centered. And what I found was an extreme bias and a lot of hypocrisy towards anybody that questioned their um their paradigm and there were some people in there who i had conversations with uh over the internet and also a retired md and a retired neuropsychiatrist who i know in this area who they said that they were too afraid during their careers or the other ones that i had conversations with online they were too afraid to even test or to challenge, be open about their questions because they felt like they were going to be scrutinized and lose their career and their families. And it's, it's bullying. Yeah. Right. We're, we're bullying parents. Parents are feeling bullied into getting their children vaccinated. Right. We're holding an education over their heads where, you know, doctors are firing patients because they're refusing to vaccinate their kids for medical reasons, for religious reasons, whatever their reasons might be, practices are like, then you can't be here. That's bullying, mm -hmm. right? And, it, and as much as parents are being bullied, medical doctors are being bullied. Yeah, I don't know. I personally haven't met an MD that had a bad intention for the people they worked with. They might've you know, believed in some things that weren't you know, full or complete, but I've never met an MD that was doing what they were doing and saying, like, I want to cause all this harm to people. It's, you know, they're just a lot of them just kind of feel like stuck and like they don't really have a choice but to do what they're doing. Right. Yep. I, I, I see that every day as well. I see medical doctors as being very well-intentioned people, um, but they they have a certain... You know, they've been reared in a system that is wholly dependent on pharmaceutical funding, mm -hmm. right? There's no medical college in the country that exists without, without pharmaceutical research money, right? You can't have one. Right. There's, there's none that exists to my knowledge. There's yeah, certainly none happen. within the United States. Or if they so, do, it's like a massive fundraising campaign that they have to do sometimes for years just to... Right. No. So there's no medical college in the United States that exists without pharmaceutical research money. Right. right? It just doesn't. It, there's not one that exists. 
So from a from day one, when they start to practice, they're they're just completely um, overwhelmed with propaganda about how great pharmaceuticals are. You know, better living through chemicals, mm. right? Once upon a time, better living through chemicals was agricultural, and we used it to spray DDT over everything and chlorinated hydrocarbons, right? And then along came Rachel Carson with her book, A Silent Spring, and just an incredibly articulate author who could, who could present material in such a way that it was not only enjoyable for the reader to read, but it delivered an incredibly impactful message mm. that led to, um, to um, President Kennedy filing a, um, filing a report. What did he do? He, he convened a um, group of scientists to study chlorinated hydrocarbons and the effect on the environment. And guess what he found? Even though Rachel Carson had been maligned by every chemical company in the United States— she was a woman. The poor thing got just torn apart because she was a woman. So she couldn't possibly understand the complex nature of chemicals and the environment. And mm. she ought to just go home and get pregnant. Right? Mm. <laughs> just ripped apart. What they didn't know is Rachel Carson had cancer. And there was an expiration date on her life. And she didn't care. And she was just going to do everything within her power. And that led to the establishment of um, of the Environmental Protection Agency. Oh, wow. Right? Huh. Just an amazing woman. And right now, those very same tactics that were used against Rachel Carson are being used against the community who has become acutely aware of the dangers of vaccinating our children. Especially at the rate that we are vaccinating them today, hmm. and without study. Hmm. Yeah, there isn't. You know, I in that two weeks of research, I was looking into um, you know studies on sort of like both sides of the fence, and I wasn't finding a whole lot that were really well done that were showing. Uh, that they were doing what they were doing at the effects that they were. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a doctor and I'm not, I don't have, you know, a background in molecular biology or biochem right. or anything. So who am I? But nevertheless, I've read, you know, probably thousands of studies at this point throughout the past five, six years of my life on all sorts of things. And you can kind of tell when there's like some, some shakiness about the basis of where they're coming from, the the foundation of where they're, you know, really operating from. And uh, one of my first mentors told me, whenever you're reading studies, Bryce, always follow the money. Look at who funded it and try to see if they have anything to gain from that being positive or if they have anything to lose from it being negative and what are the risks and what are the costs for them. And that was a really useful piece of information. You can't always do that, but I ha I had a friend um, a month or two ago who was sitting on a plane, and he struck up a conversation with the guy next to him. You know, oh, 
what are you doing? I'm going down to uh, Los Angeles to work with families who, you know, work with former, um, with veterans who have PTSD, with kids who have autism, et cetera, doing, um, doing what he does, which is really interesting work. Um, and this guy on the, on the plane with him was like, oh, I'm just coming back from doing an environmental impact study in Alaska on whatever it was. I don't know if it was some sort of drilling or something else. So my friend Jerry looks at him and goes, oh, what'd you find? And he looks at Jerry and he goes, what do you think I found? I was getting paid by a gas company. I found that the environmental impact is not going to be all that serious because that's what I was being paid to find. Right. Right. Yep. It's basically bribery. Yeah. But... yeah. And he's at the University of California. Mm. Right. They get tons of money to do this kind of research. Yeah. Right. It's the so. At, we need a lot more people to get involved in this movement mm. so that we can protect these rights. No one's looking to take anything away. No one on my side of the no one on my side of the table is looking to get rid of vaccinations. They right? just want to give people a choice. It's all about choice. Yeah. And it should be. You know, if you've had a if you've had a history of being vaccine injured or you have a child who's one of multiple children who's been severely injured or even moderately injured, then your doctor should not feel like his practice is being threatened by giving your family a medical exemption. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and that's not right. Right. And we need to start studying this subset of vulnerable kids because it's between two and 3% of the population. Right. And nobody has ever studied that subset. Hmm. So when's it going to happen? Hmm. Hmm. When's that subset going to be studied? And when are we going to find out why they're susceptible to an adverse event? I was uh, sitting with someone earlier today looking through um, this company with a database that you can plug in uh, genetic tests into um, called Nutrigenetic Research. And some of the research that they're doing into sort of these complex topics like mycotoxins from mm -hmm. like mold yep. and um, for instance, like what genetic variants are uh, leaving people predisposition to Lyme infections or Lyme co-infections and, you know, things that aren't commonly known. And it's, it's just a very fascinating field of research. And I, I figure at some point, it's going to probably be something like that where we do. And that's why earlier I said pre the genetic predisposition, because that's what popped into my mind is like, there are definitely people out there that if we can recognize what snippets might leave them vulnerable to something like this. The, the introduction, going back to um, Rachel Carson again, and the introduction of all these environmental toxins, you know, these chlorinated hydrocarbons like DDT and, and its brothers and sisters, was another massive epigenetic shift in the human structure, mm -hmm. right? And since then, we've introduced tens of thousands, if not probably hundreds of thousands of more chemicals 
yeah. beyond what we had in the 50s and the 60s. Glyphosate, polysorbate 80, I mean, the list it's could just go on, on and, and on, on and on, on, right? The epigenetic damage that we're doing to ourselves, and now we're thinking about messing with our RNA with a COVID vaccine? Yeah. You know, we, we've got to sit back just because we can do it. I, I talked to a scientist many years ago who was in pharmaceutical development. And he said to me, Sarge, I'm not an ethicist. As a scientist, I'm extremely curious about whether something can be done or can't be done. Mm. Whether it should be done or shouldn't be done is the job of a medical ethicist, not mine. He goes, I'm a scientist. I'm gonna try to figure out if I can do it because I've got an intellectual curiosity that won't be satisfied unless I determine the answer to that question. Right. But whether or not it should be done is not the job of someone who's sitting there getting paid to make pharmaceuticals. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're just there to figure right. things out. Right. Hmm. And just like medical doctors, I don't think they're bad people. Right. I think that they're convinced that their contributions, this is their contribution to society. Yeah. And if it puts some dollars in their pocket, all the better. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I feel the same way about my work. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that I'm doing really important, good work Yeah. For, for not just my local community, but my community across the country and elsewhere. Right on. Um, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree with that. There's always going to be skeptics. I just had this... I had a very in-depth talk about this where, um, you know, one of my, my fears in my position is it's honestly having these very hot topics, hot controversial topics, right? Because I'm worried that all these people are just going to make assumptions and, and so forth. So one person just said, Bryce, just do your best and be in your integrity. And you trust yourself enough to do that. You're not going to... Um, oh, what was it that uh, they basically said like no matter what you're going to attract skeptics no matter what there's going to be people that are going to be countering what you're saying and they're going to disagree with you but if you stay silent because of that see how that feels right and it doesn't make me feel good i feel like these conversations need to happen and i don't care if they're uncomfortable or not because i've been having them just behind the closed curtain you know and I think that it is definitely time that these conversations start being in more of the limelight and people start getting comfortable with them because it's important for the future of humanity and um, the future well-being. Like, I want to have a family one day, you know. One of, one of my Facebook friends, I can't remember who it was, you know, I was going through the Facebook feed at some point today and mm -hmm. someone wrote a really, I thought, um, made an articulate point on Facebook today and said, um, you may, you may love Trump and that's great. You're still my friend. You may hate Trump. That's great. You're still my friend. Right. But if you can't be my friend, if you can't, if you can't have a conversation with me because of my political beliefs, you're probably not my friend. Yeah. Right. Like yep. we have to, we have to be able to. We have you. Have, if you're going to walk into a senator's office or a representative's office, 
and you're going to present a persuasive case to them on whatever subject you're there to talk to them about, you better be willing to come in with an attitude of, I'm here to educate you. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm not going to yell and scream at you. Mm. You know, we've seen a lot of that in in the political landscape this year. Um, and there's one individual in particular who has just, he swears a lot. He screams a lot. He's, he's putting himself out there as empowering the people. But I believe his message is remarkably disempowering. I believe that he sees those people, his followers, as capital, and he has no intention of using them for anything other than his own personal gain. Unfortunately, mm. he did not get he did not get elected, which he's fighting right now. Um, but he has a tremendous amount of followers. But I think they've been misled. Mm. Wouldn't be the first time. It wouldn't history. be the first. No, it wouldn't be the first time. It would yeah. be far, far from the first time. Yeah, I, I think that once you get some momentum going, as far as a movement and, um, and a following, it it can be pretty, pretty easy to get those people to just gather more and more. It's like you know when you see something crazy happening on the street or something, it's like you rubberneck towards it and you see what that is and you get interested and maybe look into it a bit more and you know you. It's like this the selective bias too of the human mind and how we hear things that we like to hear. Yeah. And you know, some people are more in like critical thinking where they can discern those things, but um, you know, if you're if you're tired or just you're just not that type of person, you know, it might be easy for you to fall into those types of things. And uh So something I want to dive into is the type of work that you're doing here at uh at active healing um specifically with the the kids and the neurological development and you know sort of like the rehabilitation of any sort of stuff that they've acquired um throughout their lives uh so i this is obviously a subject that's dear to my heart right is what got me into where where We've only got a narrow little shot of of my clinic area right now. Mm -hmm. But within my clinic, I have a lot of different technologies. Um, one of the things that probably makes us kindred spirits is our use of technology to help people overcome challenging health conditions, yeah. right? There's definitely a need for it. Um, but what brought me into the world of all these technologies was the world of... Um, the world of neurological reorganization or neurodevelopmental movement, as we're mm -hmm. now calling it. <clears throat> so neurodevelopmental movement is really easy to explain. It's much harder to put into practice as, as a technique mm -hmm. to help your child overcome whatever challenges she or he may be facing. Um, so to explain it, I like to use the, I like to get people grounded in the idea that function will always lead to structure and structure will always lead to function. Mm. It's a natural law and you'll see it everywhere. You'll see it, in a, you'll see it in the boardroom of a law office. You'll see it 
in an architect's office, right? You'll watch it on television. My wa- my wife yesterday was watching um, Tiny House Nation. <laughs> she loves these, like do it, do, you know, yeah. The, yeah, all these programs. For she sure. loves. She's a she's a sap for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what happens when these when these two guys are coming in to build you a tiny house? What's the first thing they do? They say, "So tell us about you. What do you like? What do you want to do? How do you want to use this space?" Right. Hmm. Because they have to structure it around however it's going to function for the family, right? You, so if you're Bill and Hillary Clinton are not living in a tiny house because their lives could not function within that environment, mm-hmm. right? They probably have a second kitchen, I'm guessing. I don't know this. But you could make the argument that they probably have a second kitchen Sure. For professional chefs mm-hmm. who are going to cater events. Yeah. And then maybe they have a smaller, cozier kitchen where Bill likes to cook for more intimate settings, right? But their house, and then you forget the security aspect of it, right? Like it's probably crazy. So the structure of their house has to unfold in a certain way to allow it to function as we want it to. And if you're writing a legal brief, the structure of that brief is totally, it totally varies it, depending on, you know, maybe you're in a civil case or maybe you're in, you know, maybe you're defending someone against a murder charge, mm. right? There's, the structure of those briefs are going to look very different depending on, you know, what you're doing, you're, the function of the law. Like if you're doing a merger between two massive businesses, it's going to look a lot different than if you're defending a drunk driver. Right. Right. And so we can take it to a personal level as well. Right. And I like to use, I don't know, I don't know the name of the person who won the Boston Marathon last running, but I know what he looked like. He looked emaciated Mm. to me, which is not meant as a degrading statement, Mm. but if you compare that person's structure to Usain Bolt. We all know Usain Bolt because he was in the Verizon commercials or whatever, right? right? I mean, the guy's got huge shoulders, Mm -hmm. massive biceps, huge forearms, six-pack abs, giant thighs, giant calves, right? If you stand him next to the guy who won the Boston Marathon, they don't look anything alike at all. Mm. And yet they both do very much the same thing. They earn their money running. And he's a sprinter versus endurance, uh, long right? distance runner, yeah. right? So the little, the little small difference between how they train, the functional way that a sprinter trains versus the way a marathon runner trains, leads to massive structural differences, hmm. right? Hmm. We need to appreciate that the same thing happens when a child is going through this what's technically called this ontogenetic process. So every one more time ontogenetic ontogenetic. So what happens is that given the opportunity, any human being will learn how to crawl on their stomachs in a military crawl before getting up on hands and knees and beginning to creep before pulling themselves to a stand and learning how to walk, run, jump and skip. It always comes out in that order. Mm. 
right? Now, there are places where it doesn't. One of my favorite books is this uh, photographic book of Babies Celebrated. And it shows, you know, um, tribal children who are suspended from the ceiling, like in these makeshift cribs that mm. are suspended from the tops of teepees, sure. literally. And because they're worried about poisonous snakes mm. and scorpions and whatever it might be, right? But these kids don't ever, they're never given the opportunity to learn how to crawl, but they're also never going to be asked to sit in a classroom or go to college. Mm. Right? Right. So those kids who I, I, I think the, the beauty of the human species is its diversity, mm. right? And in Western cultures, we put education pretty much above everything else, right? We want our kids to grow up educated so that they can learn how to read, they can learn how to write, they can go out and get a job in which they find fulfillment and happiness and can support a family of their own, right? But if you're growing up somewhere else on the planet in the deepest of the Amazon or Africa somewhere, right? It's more important to be able to hit a monkey with a blow dart from a hundred yards away, right? And we prize that stuff. right? And so what those children need to go through in terms of their development is different than what we expect a child to go through. Mm -hmm. And still, if you remove those barriers, if you take that child and give him the opportunity, he'll learn how to roll over, he'll learn how to crawl on his stomach, he'll learn how to creep on hands and knees, and he'll eventually get up, stand, and learn how to hop, skip, and jump. It's a very organic it's development. A it's, it is in our genetic blueprint. It, it is how our species has evolved as a species, mm. which is really interesting to think about, right? Because, you know, our species started as a one-celled animal right. that eventually divided, right? And yet a human being starts as a one-celled animal mm. and those cells divide. So the ontogeny of the human being recapitulates the, the phylogeny of the species as a whole. So one is mirroring the other. Right. It's this incredible thing, right? Mm -hmm. And you can further look at it and you can see evidence of this by looking at um, the brains of different animals. So animals that have a truncal pattern of movement, they might have other areas of the brain that are present, right? But the most evolved and functional aspect of, the, of a brain of an animal like a fish that only has a truncal pattern of movement is going to be the medulla oblongata. Hmm. And when that fish um, learns how, like, comes out of the ocean and learns how to crawl around on its belly, well, guess what? It starts to develop a pons. Huh. And when that fish learns how to get up on its legs and creep around, it starts to develop a midbrain. And guess what happens when it starts to walk? It gets That's a right. deeply fissured cortex. Oh, interesting. Right? And so a human being who only has a truncal pattern of movement, mm -hmm. they have a pons, they have a, these midbrain structures, they've got a corpus callosum and a cerebellum, and they've got a cortex, but none of it is working mm. until they, uh, not at capacity, right? until they go through these developmental stages. Mm. So we're smart, 
you know, if I'm sitting across the table from Marie, like, we haven't been drinking scotches, we're not smoking marijuana, this isn't the Joe Rogan experience, right? <laughs> yeah. So I've had a good lunch, a healthy lunch. I'm assuming you had a probably very healthy lunch, probably maybe even healthier than mine. <laughs> and um, if I suddenly lost my ability to speak, you're either going, oh my God, Sergeant suddenly developed stage fright in the middle of our conversation tonight, or oh my God, I think he's having a stroke. Right, or seizure or something. Right. Yeah. And if it's a stroke and you're a neurologist and you're sitting across the table from me, you know exactly where the stroke has occurred in the brain mm. based on which function I've lost, mm. right? Because we understand function determines structure and structure determines function. Right. And it's a loop. So you can literally backtrace. So like thinking of like those movements that you were just saying, right? So if someone is having... For instance, issues feeling connected to a certain part of their body, then it's possible that by what part of their body they're in a way dissociated from, you can figure out where they might have damage or dysfunction in the brain. And it's not so much dissociation from the body. Mm -hmm. It's inability to move in a functionally sophisticated way. Like being able to use your left hand at just as Like efficient. being able to crawl on your stomach. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have an epidemic of childhood illness. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our conversation leading up to this, I think, explains a lot of where a lot of those illnesses are come from. I mm -hmm. think we've got epigenetic damage to all the parents. Mm -hmm. I think that's being followed through with lots of generations of kids, mm -hmm. right? Like seventh generation, the cleaning products. They got their name because Native Americans understand that whatever happens to a parent is going to be seen in at least seven generations of kids, mm. right? That's how that company got its name. Huh. And you see it in religious writings as well, that the sins of the father or mother <laughs> right. follow at least seven generations of kids, huh. right? So this seventh generation thing. so. From my perspective and just knowing that, my feeling is that we're seeing amplification of what's happening in the parents through seven generations of kids. Mm. And so it's epigenetic damage and these kids are arriving with epigenetic damage and then we're, we're amplifying that by immersing them in this highly toxic world right? that doesn't just stop begin and stop with with immunizations yeah it's much more extensive than that hmm. it's the water they're drinking it's air pollution it is you know mold exposure within right. their house mm. it is tick-borne illnesses it is the EMFs food and... it's it's electromagnetic smog yeah. late at it's, night and just right there's a ton of stuff going yeah. on that list could go on <laughs> and on but what's happening is we're one of the things that's clearly happening to these kids, in my experience, is we're interrupting this very important ontogenetic process with our kids. And the back to sleep campaign has something to do with it um, and all these other things that we've just discussed. But when a child is not given the opportunity to learn how to crawl on his belly in a sophisticated pattern, we can look at it, so that function of crawling, m all of our listeners will be able to understand tonight because we've got smart listeners. 
all of our listeners are going to be able to understand tonight that when a child really digs in with their toe and thrusts off their leg to push themselves forward on their stomach, that that arches the bottom of the foot, Mm. right? We can understand how that stretches the heel cord. Mm. We can understand how that wears a hip socket. We can understand how that forms, helps form the secondary curves in the spine. We can understand how breathing against their body weight helps develop a strong chest and lung capacity, Mm. right? We can see how all of the structural stuff in the spine is helping innerviate things like taste and smell, right? We get that. But people don't think that way. And those that do rarely go on to think about, okay, so that's physically what's happening to my child. What's happening on a neurological level? Mm. And what's happening on a neurological level is, in my opinion, much more important than anything that I've just mentioned. Because when a child is learning how to crawl on their stomach, they are challenging and growing the pawns. Mm. The pawns sit behind your eyes. It is responsible for, among other things, your ability to bond, your ability to feel belonging, right? Your ability to feel like you belong in your family, like you belong in the classroom, like you belong in the school, like you belong in the community. That happens, in my opinion, largely within the pawns. The pawns is where we get all of our awareness of pain, temperature, and discomfort. How many kids out there do we have that are both flat-footed and have sensory integration disorder? There is a tremendous correlation, Mm. right? The pawns is really important in the development of language, right? How many, if you look, if you go out and look at kids with autism and you look at the bottoms of their feet, guess what? Usually. The vast majority of them are flat-footed. Interesting. Right? They, and they may have learned how to crawl. Right. Right? But if you learn how to crawl without using your feet, you're using your thighs and your knees and your forearms and your elbows mm. instead of your toes and your hands, it's that little difference that equates to the difference between the guy who won the Boston Marathon and Usain Bolt. Right. Right? And, but on a brain scale. Yeah. It's interesting because coming from, you know, my work, my formal training is in massage therapy. And so after a period of time working in this field, when I would lay my hands on people, I feel these patterns. You know, I, uh, I, I don't, when I'm laying hands on a person, I'm not looking at them. I'm feeling and I'm feeling where these patterns of tension are coming from. And usually always those patterns of tension have some type of like underlying, uh, like the word I used before, dissociation, or some form of part of the body where they're just a little bit more checked out, or they just haven't paid attention to that part of the body. And so part of my, you know, my work is to get them back into that part of the body. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing, but in a different, in a very different way, and a more structured and functional way. So I, I think that any kind of structural work that we can do with these people, whether it's massage therapy, it's cranial sacral therapy, it's chiropractic, it's osteopathy, it's whatever it might be, I think is critically important. But when a child is going through these specific movement patterns, so when a child is learning how to crawl, 
what we want to see, there's a lot of things that we want to see, right? But the two most important things are we want to see a cross-lateral pattern of movement and we want to see a two-beat rhythm, mm. right? So we want to see that child reaching, and they're, they're laying on their stomach. So when I say reaching above their head, I mean they're reaching above their head, but their hand's on the floor, right? right. So if they're reaching up with their right hand, that right hand should be extended and it should be it should be so extended that it crosses midline a mm. little bit. So it comes over to the other side of their body just a little bit. So this is the the cross crawling technique, right? This is on your belly, yes. Yeah. Right? And if it's the right hand, then the left knee needs to be bent so that the knee is at hip level. Mm. The heel is lifted off the floor a little bit, and the big toe is dug firmly into the ground. Now I don't know about you, but my thighs and calves are a heck of a lot bigger than my biceps and my forearms. Yeah. So I always figure 80% of the work should be coming from the legs. Mm. And then the arms are helping that extra little 20%. And what should be happening is the right arm should be advancing and getting placed on the floor at exactly the same time as the left leg and the left foot is being placed on the floor. And then they should be, you know, the right arm should be pulling at the right. same moment that the left leg is pushing. So this is, and a... they should finish their stroke at the same time. And then obviously the opposites would be doing the same thing. Right. So we call that a two beat rhythm because you could mm. literally clap it out. It's one, two, one, two, mm. one, two, right? So you can have a ton of variations on just that. Like you could have the right arm going forward and then the left arm comes forward and then the left leg comes forward sure. and then the left leg pushes off and then the right arm kind of gets, you know, by the side and it push so you can have there's I've been doing this for 25 years. I just saw a variation yesterday uh, 2 days ago that I'd never seen before in 25 years. Hmm. So I'm telling you there's no end to the variations, but I'm telling you there's one way to do it correctly. Yeah. It involves so when the right if the right arm is the one that's up as the child progresses forward and his hand comes back oops it should actually get trapped hmm. under his chest and it rotates the hand rotates it comes under the chest rotates and then comes back out again hmm. right That is what is the basis for all of your manual skills hmm. from that point forward right so the fact that you have to lift your heel in order to dig with your toe, that causes you to flex your ankle. That right. means every time you flex your knee, you flex your ankle to get your toe in position to dig. When you're walking, that means you end up not on your toes mm -hmm. because every time you lift your knee, you flex your ankle and you end up in a heel toe gate mm -hmm. instead of on your toes. Right. Right. I There's just recently got into uh, like minimalist shoes and minimalist running, not, yeah. to, not to cut you off. and my posture has changed. I feel more in my body because I started adapting my walk because when you switch to minimalist shoes and you're going heel toe, it hurts. Like after a while, it starts to become uncomfortable. Yeah. And so you end up changing your gait to more of that either heel center toe. mass yeah. or your foot, you're at the ball of your foot and then going down. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's what we're seeing today i what so 
you could sum up the work that I do. So we've got kids with sensory integration disorder. We've got kids with autism. We've got kids with cerebral palsy. We've got kids with dyslexia, ADD, ADHD, you know, um, all the, an alphabet soup of disorders, right? I, th- I used to say that it was 12% of school-age children had were impacted by learning disabilities. I think that number might be closer to 20% now. Yeah. That's a huge number. That's, That's a huge a number. Fifth. And you know what they all have in common? A movement disorder. Mm. And we need to recognize that that kid who's not able to go out on the ball field and and play catch with his dad or bat, you know, or organize himself on the football field, is also the kid who's got dyslexia, ADD, ODD, OCD. It stacks what, together. Right. It all comes back to all of these kids have a movement disorder. And the movement disability is not separate from all of these labels. It's actually central to what's going on. So how, like, I know that you work with a couple of adults too. How beneficial would it be for an adult that has these types of things? Because I know when you're a child, you're much more malleable and neuroplastic, so you tend to be able to do these things and you're still in a developmental stage. But I, I can't shake this feeling because, like, for me, I start when I started doing calisthenics and functional movement, my brain changed. When I started, like, uh, you know, I don't do, like, typical workouts. I don't go to a gym. If I want to work out, I'm literally laying on the floor and I'm like putting my feet in the air and I'm rolling around and I'm like, you know, moving weights around and like I'm doing this sort of like free form stuff that just feels good for my body. And it's kept me in, you know, generally pretty good shape. And the days when I do that, if I have to work after, I'm like, I'm supercharged, you know, I'm ready to do whatever I got to do and I feel great. Well, we're always talking about windows of opportunity being closed at certain ages for certain things for kids, right? And that does happen. But a a good carpenter can unseal any window, right? Right. (laughs) And so I feel like when we do this work, when we do this work, we we pry those windows right back open again. Mm. Um, And we give these kids an opportunity. You know, I'm not saying there's not limitations to structure because there are limitations to structure. I don't work miracles. I I work hard. <laughs> yeah. And if you work really hard, the results can be phenomenal. Mm. Um, going back to your example about your minimalist shoes, this adorable, adorable little girl who comes into my practice, and I love her, and I love her mom, and her dad's fantastic, and this mom is just she puts her heart and soul into Mm. everything that she does for this little girl and she does it with the cleanest of some of the cleanest intentions that i've ever seen it's just it's just a a, it's an amazing thing of beauty to watch Mm. and i'm so happy that i get to be the one who stewards them through this process so it's really it's, it's a wicked honor yeah and it came time to teach this little girl evelyn how to walk, right? We taught her how to crawl. Oh my God, her crawling is beautiful. We taught her how to creep. Her creeping is amazing. We then got her 
paired up with a really good an optometrist who specializes in neuro-optometric rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And we got her fit with a really phenomenal pair of glasses that he uses, this guy's name is Dr. William Padula. Um, and he uses a really different model of vision to assess and then help his clients. Um, so we got her down to Padula. She got these incredible glasses. She started seeing things that she'd never seen before, detail that she'd never seen before, start playing with toys for the first time. And ultimately it became time to teach her how to walk. So um, what I did was I took a pair of, she had a, you know, she's young. She's, I don't know, two and a half at this point or sure. whatever. I took a pair of her shoes and I cut the tops off her shoes from, you know, about where her big toe starts straight across. Hmm. Like if you were wearing a pair of Converse All-Stars, you know, the rubber tip at the end. Yeah, yeah. It would have been that section of the shoe that I cut off. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit down further than that, but I cut that off. With a full toe flexion. Right. Yeah. So that she had full toe flexion. Yeah. We then, from that same point back on the sole of her shoe, we put Velcro on the bottoms of her shoes. We put her on a um, loop carpeting underneath monkey bars. Mm-hmm. So she supported herself with her hands in order to free her heel, her foot, from the carpeting, she had to roll forward to the to the ball of her feet. Wow. She had full flexion. Guess what happened? She's now running around all over the place. Huh. So so we put ourselves in all sorts of constrictive devices, or our parents put us in all sorts of constrictive devices. Right. Sometimes it's for the betterment. Sometimes it's to preserve our life. Sure. Because we need to be protected from a black mamba. Right. Right? Or a poisonous spider or a whatever it might be, Mm. right? But other times it's merely convenience. And Graco and other companies like Graco have profited enormously for convenience stakes by producing things like Jolly Jumpers and activity stations that hold kids upright long before they're meant to be upright, Mm. right? When a child is ready to be upright, guess what happens? They'll do it. They do it themselves. Right. Right. And you know what happens if you take a child who can be upright on their own and you put them in an activity station? They struggle because they're reliant. They flip out. Mm. (laughs) They do not want to be confined to an activity station. Right. And up until that point, they should never be in an activity station Mm. because they don't have the visual development for it. They don't have depth perception. Right. They don't have the writing reflexes, the ability to self-write. If they start to fall one way, they don't have the ability to counterbalance and self-write in the other direction. Mm. They don't have the tactility. They don't have the musculature. They don't have the spinal development. They don't have the vision. They belong nowhere near an activity station. They belong that holds them upright. They belong nowhere near a jolly jumper. Like they don't, they shouldn't be going from the basket that clips into the car seat to the basket that clips into the swing to the basket that clips into the stroller. Right. We're, we're minimalist shoes are the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and yet so important. Super. Yep. Right. I mean, even 
I don't know if you, you've probably seen them. They have all these images circulating around now in like the functional movement communities where it uh, almost like characterizes where we have more neurons, sensory neurons. So it's like the head, the hands, the chest, and the feet. And they're all bigger on the person. And, you know, I just think of my, my own experience walking in grass. If you spend a moment to actually consider how many processes that that is starting up in the body by walking barefoot on the grass by walking on rocks i mean you're basically getting like massaged as you're walking if you really like think of it that way it becomes so enjoyable to be barefoot and to spend this time in the senses within the body and yeah so a year ago this past september so just about a year ago now um i was in germany i was doing uh medical tour of Germany and it was a holistic medical tour mm -hmm. and um, it was mostly um, it was mostly about the use of um, I'm gonna butcher it um, I believe the guy's name was Kn Knapp but anyways um, it was about using water as a healing modality for the most part. It was a really interesting. And everywhere that we went, pretty much, I want to say, pretty close to everywhere we went, you know what they had? A barefoot path. Huh. And these barefoot paths were amazing. They were usually, usually you could be on it for somewhere about an hour, right? An hour to an hour and a half. And you'd, you'd walk through mud that was knee high. Wow. Right? And then you'd come out and wash your legs off and then you'd be walking over smooth rocks and then you'd be walking over rough rocks and then mm -hmm. you'd be in grass and then you'd be in a water crossing and then you'd be on a little rock labyrinth where all the stones were different sizes and sometimes it was smooth and comfortable and sometimes it was those little pebbles that get really in there and yeah. really Ow. crank up your feet and hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you come out and you're on logs and you're they like every possible terrain wow. from roots and branches to grass to mud to water <laughs> to stone to brick to pavers to like everything and they're amazing to do and you feel so grounded and so centered after you come out of these places it really was that those were some of my highlights of that trip yeah. where those barefoot pass and they're all over germany and you couldn't do them in the united states because you'd be worried about stepping on a needle or glass or or a glass yeah they don't keep them clean it's the the whole german mindset i never once thought that i was going to step on a needle mm. i was up in uh camden maine recently which is Quite honestly, it must have been one of the most beautiful places I've been in my entire life, without a doubt. And when we were up there, there are just so many woods. And you're surrounded by these, like, small mountains and lakes and plains with wild flowers, at least at the time I went up. Yeah. And when you're just walking barefoot in a place like that, there's something so euphoric and elating to the body. It just feels so right. You almost never want to leave. And I, I think that that, it, you know, when you're like really hungry and you eat some food after you haven't eaten in a while, it's just so, you're so much more grateful for it. If you cook your own food, if you like wait, it's like, 
there's something so fulfilling when you have that experience again that it's like it's satiating a deep need that on some level our bodies know that we need that the, but we neglected we, it we need to be grounded yeah we need that exchange of ions yep. we we need that in our lives yeah we need the pressure on the bottom of our feet yeah to be stimulating but you know what i want to see tony robbins teach mm. i want to see tony robbins teach people how to walk on fire on their hands <laughs> right you ever think about why we don't do that not really. <laughs> your hands would burn. Oh, that's a good point. Because your hands are far more sensitive than the bottoms of your feet. Mm. Now, the trick question here is why? Hmm. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you. When you're crawling on your stomach, it's really only your big toe, maybe two or three other toes. But really, your big toe is in contact with the floor while you right. crawl on your stomach. As soon as you get up on hands and knees... It's now the backs of your feet. Mm. The soles are no longer in contact. But through that entire developmental process, the palms of your hands are in contact with the floor. Hmm. When you're pulling your, if you're doing it properly, when you're pulling yourself forward in a crawl, you're pulling with your palms. Hmm. Nice open hand. That's what, when children are born, they're, they're cortically fisted. Their thumbs are inside their fists. And that process of teaching them how to crawl is what opens the hands and gives them purpose. Wow. But it's also stimulating over and over and over. You think about how many thousands of times a child's palm is is pulling them across the floor. Mm. And then you extend that many more months because when they're creeping on hands and knees, the palms are still on the floor. Mm. Right? So I should go so, home and drag myself with my so palms. So <laughs> your palms, your palms can discriminate the tails and heads side of a quarter mm. with your eyes shut. Even if you had the agility to do that with your feet, your feet could never tell the difference between the heads and tails side of a quarter. Mm. Mm. The, Very um, true. So, yeah. I mean, you probably I, could. I'll, I'll pay Tony Robbins to teach me how to walk across fire. <laughs> with your hands. With my hands. I've already done it on my feet, and it wasn't yeah. that big a deal. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, one really cool thing that I learned um, after going through massage school was when I first started massaging, doing deep tissue work with my elbow, I couldn't feel shit. You know, I, I could feel maybe a couple inches I was feeling what what was there but even then it was really hard to connect with my elbow and after a while of practicing a while of doing it you start to be able to have such a higher level of sensitivity in the areas that you pay attention to and focus on and that I think is a big part of this too it's like we were talking about the transgenerational epigenetic damage of parents to child. I genuinely think, for instance, like from Bruce Lipton, I, th I think that trauma, emotional trauma as well, can be passed down. Like even... Oh, I know it can. Yeah. Yeah, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Like, it's especially the severe traumas, the traumas that the, the parent never resolves. And so, you know, for me moving forward, I want a family in this life. It might happen, it might not. But I want to make sure that I've become as resolved and as capable of resolving my personal traumas before I decide to copy and paste myself into the world. <laughs> you know, I, that, I don't think there's a parent out there 
who who doesn't feel the same way. Yeah. And yet I am also convinced that our children are placed on this earth to help us grow. I agree. And they're going to stretch you. Yeah. No matter how prepared <laughs> you think you are, your kid's going to stretch you. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. I the the thing that always comes up when it comes to having children it for me personally is just you know worrying about all of the chaos that they might be stepping into but then i think of my own life which while it was chaotic there was peace and there was a lot of beauty there was a lot of love and it's like at the end of the day i would love to be able to bring a child into this world and just watch them prosper and grow into their own and yeah absolutely that like i there's no doubt in my mind that they are going to reflect back to me myself so strongly um there are generations that came before either of us bryce and they lived through world war one and world war two and the korean war mm. right and then vietnam right and and invite and than the development of the Environmental Protection you know, Agency. Sure. I, every generation has a struggle. And we're, we're never, I don't see us as ever being in a place where we're not going to struggle. Hmm. And even, even if you're in a time of relative peace and tranquility, you're you still have to go tra through transitions as an individual yeah and you have to go through that juvenile stage of development and everything's going to be chaotic and it's part of what makes us who we are mm. right i to you don't want to bring a child into this world who never struggles because that child is not going to develop. No, they're not. Right? You you only get growth when there's labor. I always I always say this to the people I work with too when they're going through times of tribulation, have you ever had a point in your life where pain or suffering didn't lead to growth and de personal development? Right. They think about it and they're like, "Nope. Every single time that we get hit with something, it just makes us stronger." And right. some things but are harder hits than others but so i'm going to bring this conversation back mm -hmm. and i'm going to bring it back to specifically vaccines mm. right what exactly are we trying to avoid mm. right mm. there there is a lot of evidence that shows that after a child gets these routine child illnesses that we're now trying to prevent them from ever getting that their immune systems go through an enormous growth. And without a stronger immune system, the body can't grow the way that it was meant to develop. Right. Right? We, as a species, um, we started off, so look at us, right? Like, we're not a bear. We're not a lion. We're not, we're not an elephant. Right, we don't have a lot to protect us. Mm -hmm. So everything that we've done historically, and I'm talking prehistorically mm. even, everything that we've done has been 
to emulate an animal, right? We've fashioned knives as claws, right? We've, we've, we've taken, we've looked at the animal kingdom and we've said, well, geez, I don't have fangs, but I can create weapons, right? Right. And we've designed those weapons largely from interacting with our environment and the animals within that environment. Mm. Right. And, and, but it wasn't good enough for us to ever imitate animals. We had to dominate animals. Mm. Right. That's how it evolved. We went from imitation to domination. And that mindset, I think, just keeps evolving for people. I think that, and that dominion, we're trying to dominate viruses. We're trying to dominate bacteria. We're trying to dominate. And we're forgetting that the only reason that we're here is because of those viruses. Right. Because of those bacteria. Mm. Right? And... And we need to not we need to not focus so much on dominating things. We need to learn how to live. You know, there's a woman um, who's a client here brought in a book, and I'm afraid I don't know the title, but I can get it. And it's a book about cancer, and it talks about this very same fact that we not, we need to that cancer has been around ever since one cell divided into two. Is it the metabolic theory? No, oh, it's okay. not. Yeah. The, um, but in any multi-celled animal, you have instances of cancer, mm -hmm. right? I think my poor dog right now, who's at the end of her life at mm -hmm. 13 and a half years, she's got evidence of cancer, right? And I'm not doing anything about it because her quality of life is still really darn good. And I take very good care of her. Mm. Um, and she's happy, you know, and she's still stretching. And But all animals have suffered from cancer. We're not the only animals that suffer from cancer. Right. Right. And a lot of animals actually have their life bettered by cancer. Hmm. You know, like... In, this, in the first chapter of this book that I was reading, the author was talking about cactuses and how cactuses get cancer and how cactuses with cancer are some of the most prized cactuses in the world. Interesting. Because of the way they bud, the way they flower, the way they look, like they're, they're truly unique. Um, and that our efforts shouldn't be at dominating cancer. Our efforts should be at not having cancer take from us the way mm. that it does. Mm. We don't need to kill cancer. We need to learn how to live in a harmonious way with cancer. Right. And we are doing anything but that right now. Yeah. We will go to the point where we come as close as we possibly can to killing the individual who has cancer in order to kill the cancer. Right. Yeah, and the irony, too, of that is um, in some ways how reflectant, reflective cancer is of just an autoimmune condition, you know, or some form of a... I know some people that talk about psychosomatic work and, you know, how those things can manifest in as disease in the body. Like, for instance, if you 
dissociate or reject or hate a certain part of your body for long enough, then the immune system starts to attack it. You know, fluids start not flowing in that area. And that, that ties back into that metabolic theory that I said a moment mm -hmm. ago. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely it does serve a purpose in the body. I think that one thing why people are so fearful of diseases is it's, it's the fundamental fear of death and suffering, right? When we don't have resolve around our relationship with death, I think that there's a inherent constant state of worry about your life and it's okay to want to live it's okay to want to thrive and be healthy and vibrant and happy but at the same time how much is that fear going to be driving into our system and how much of a sort of negative impact might that have on our overall relationship with how we go about doing things right like for instance it kind of kind of loosely ties into there's only so much pie and I need my slice of it. It's like, there's only so much life and I need my slice of life. And, you know, people are willing to go through extremes to hang on to that slice of life, which is yeah. understandable. And, and then they end up dying without dignity, which, which I think is a really, really unfortunate thing. You know, I don't want a death without dignity. I think that, um, should I be faced with a cancer diagnosis, whether it's next year or whether it's 40 years from now? I, I want to be able to handle that situation in a way that is congruent with the way that I've lived my life up to that point. And, um, and there are a lot of people who are going to be upset potentially with the choices that I make, but I am not the way that I handle that situation is a very personal choice and no one should judge me for, for how I make that decision. Absolutely. And we need to stop being so judgmental and we need to accept that, you know, someone might want to, you know, go chemo radiation and have that be their only thing. Sure. Someone else, might want to do chemo radiation and a ton of holistic stuff. Mm. And a third person may only want to do holistic stuff. And a fourth person may want to just leave it all and yep. see what happens. Yeah. Fine. I, I, I can't imagine how that is not okay. Yeah. It is very heavily pressured on people and, uh, have you ever read the autobiography of a yogi? No. There's a story from it, and it's been a while since I read this book, but they had a, a deer that they were taking care of at their um, at the ashram. And all of the boys were attached to this deer, and Yogananda was attached to the deer to some degree. And Yogananda had a dream where uh, he, you know, the... the the deer was basically dying and he knew the deer was dying and the deer spoke to him in the dream saying it's your selfishness that's making it so that I can't leave here and in the dream he let go of the deer and then when he woke up the deer was dead 
and there's I, I mean, I don't cry often when I'm reading a book. I'll, re- I'll cry from movies and things like that. But there is something so beautiful about that, about having that healthy relationship with death. And since that experience, I've gone into hypnotic states where I've experienced death. And I've experienced, like, this bliss, you know? And maybe it's just my conditioning, right? Because I've never heard of a person dying and coming back to life and being like, I was in a pit of fire and it sucks you know i've never heard that right everyone's always been like it was one of the most like elating blissful experiences i've ever experienced you know um it's like a total state of elation and so yeah i i think that you know people should have their their choice in that and how they should go how they can go about it and um they shouldn't feel pressured to do certain treatments and you know it's okay to put your two cents into the person like if someone's going to do a ridiculous treatment that obviously isn't going to work if they want to do at the end of the day it's their choice but it's okay to tell them be like listen like this this isn't a good idea you know biting the head off a snake to cure cancer is probably not (laughs) is is probably not going to lead anywhere except for perhaps more pain and misery right right and Uncle Fred, we certainly, you know, would advise that you don't do this. But if that's your choice, if that because ultimately, you know, most of the time we're talking about adults. Mm. Right. And when we're talking about adults, I think it's really important. I had a personal experience with this in which I feel like my mindset at the time allowed a, a very um a person who I loved with all of my heart and who I was very close to, my mindset allowed that person to to leave this world, mm. right? And it, it literally happened. I found out about it within an hour of my having made a mental choice <laughs> about how I was going to interact with this person moving forward. Right. And, and it, I think it was an hour and a half, maybe two hours later, I got a phone call that she was dead. Mm. right and mm. it, it was I won't go into it all it was an amazingly powerful moment mm. um, I experienced all the emotions that you can possibly experience over the course of the next two weeks um, and then my recovery was fairly quick because I feel like it wasn't empowering and I used it as an opportunity for growth for myself you know I wrote a lot of stuff down right. etc Um But what brought me to that moment was this realization that this woman was an adult and there were certain behaviors that she was doing that I didn't like very much and I didn't agree with, but it's not my life and it wasn't my place to try to coax her Mm. into a different lifestyle that if the lifestyle that she was living at that time was where she was finding happiness, then I could go to her, I could explain my position, and I could give her some choices, but I had to be okay with those choices. Yeah. You have to be okay with those choices because you can't, as much as you might desire it, you can't control another person. For me, thinking of um, 
stoic philosophy in that you do the best you can in everything that you do and if you don't succeed that's okay yeah it's it's just like finding that that neutrality but you have to but you have to you have to speak your truth exactly right right because if you don't speak your truth then you're going to live with the regret of that for the rest of your life yeah you'll be on your deathbed like i wish i right had been more of myself right but if you go and you speak your truth and you do it in a respectful way you have to accept whatever another person's decision is yeah yep going back to like the skeptic conversation and how many you know people might project things onto people that are in the holistic wellness field in general it's like it's crazy. Like back when I, before I got in all this shit, I was terrified. I was so scared. And that's the only reason I didn't open up a practice or, you know, start off with energy healing and all this stuff. Cause I was so afraid of the judgments and, um, yeah, just the, the bad rep for doing that. And then this resentment and this frustration build up inside of me until finally I just, I just did it. And when I did it, it was like this totally elating and blissful experience and things just worked out, you know, and to me, that's a sign from the universe that like I'm living in alignment with what I'm supposed to be doing right now is when things just work out. So I don't get into a nice car when I leave this. My doors are rusted. My driver's side doors are rusting right now. You know, my car's got dents in it and it, it needs a whole bunch of mechanical stuff done to it next week. Yeah. You know, but somehow I have survived in this very niche field for 25 years. And it's been, it's been, you know, by a hair Mm. at times, literally sometimes thinner than a hair that I've, that I've been able to eke this business out. Mm. But the i i always feel like when i need it the most something happens and the i it's like peter goes fishing yeah and he starts pulling <laughs> gold coins out of the fish's mouth right you know like every once in a while i feel like oh my god here are my gold coins like someone's someone's entered into my life just at the right time because yeah. they needed me and i needed them and there was an ex, a, a monetary exchange that took place right. that allowed me to go forward another two months. It's, it's almost like a test of faith to some degree. Yeah, that... it is. And there are always going to be people who are there to marginalize you and segregate you. Yeah. And a lot of times people do that. I think, you know, through the readings that I've been doing recently, I think a lot of times that what people don't want, is freedom from the perspective of like what we think of when we think of liberty. Mm. I think what I think a lot of the the freedom that a lot of Americans are looking for is freedom from responsibility. Yeah. And the way that you get freedom from responsibility is by allowing yourself to be absorbed into a larger unit where you take on you take on whatever the goals of the unit are and you lose your sense of self. And I think when you do that, 
you can end up saying some really horrible things, right? And you can end up perpetrating some really horrible things because you've lost your identity. Mm. You're no longer working as an individual. You're working as a group, and you can you can spread all of that, what otherwise might be guilt. It no longer is your guilt. It becomes swept up by the group, mm. right? And I would love to see a revolution in which instead of seeing people, and this will never happen, I, it'll never, I mean, we're talking pie in the sky, right? We're talking utopia and we're talking about things that don't actually exist. Yeah. But what I'd like to see a lot more of is I'd like to see a lot more people who are willing to accept responsibility, mm. who are willing to accept that in order for them to experience what freedom really is, to experience liberty, that they've got to work their asses off for it. Yeah. You got to be willing to put in your time, you know, and you've got to, you've, you're going to have some battle scars. Absolutely. When you come out the other side of it. And I have my battle scars and I'm sure I've got a lot more coming as well. But we need, we need people to not try to stop trying to absolve themselves and and step up to the plate mm. you know you're not doing any of us any favors by putting on a mask and then going to McDonald's that is true that that is your dissolving yourself into this into this larger unit right of of people who feel that by making this one by making this one adjustment to their lifestyle that they're justified in polluting their body mm. and I wear a mask whenever I go into Whole Foods. I'll put on a mask. I don't have any problems with that. Sure. If I'm going into a shop and they want me to wear a mask, I'll 100%. put on a mask. Yeah. Clients who come in here, they're they're generally wearing masks. Mm. Um, uh, but I have a lot of clients also who have health conditions and for whatever reason can't wear a mask. Sure. And I'm just as accepting of those people as I am of the people who don't wear masks. Yeah. And I take a ton of precautions. I take a ton of precautions in this office as far as my my cleaning schedule and I take a ton of precautions personally myself as far as the nutrients that I put into my body and I, I I'm sure there are be, there will be people who disagree with this, mm -hmm. right? And again, I wear a mask wherever I need to wear a mask. Right. But that said, my bigger contribution to preventing someone from getting sick is keeping myself healthy. Yeah. And that is not that is not accomplished as simply as donning a mask when you wake up in the morning. That takes a lot more thought and a lot more effort. It's interesting because when you see a society start to lose self-responsibility and they start giving their power away to external sources that are like, here, I'll give you all of this if you give us all your power, essentially. Your, your you know, for instance, freedom of choice yeah, and right. so forth. You really see that society to start to not work together very well. And I think that it's because you end up with all of these individuals 
who are just so frustrated and these people who are so confused about what happened because they don't understand how their power slipped out of their hands. They just look at it one day and they realize that they lost all of this stuff. Well, and that's how you create an explosion, an explosion, yeah. right? You take away gifted people, people who have talents, mm -hmm. people who maybe they're an artist, maybe they're an engineer or an architect or whatever they might be, whatever their field is, but they feel confident, they've developed skills and you restrict them from practice, right? Yeah. You're, you're preparing for a massive explosion. Mm -hmm. There is nothing worse than a group of people who feel like they can't be productive. Yeah, for real. Right? And I think that we've got a huge number of people right now who feel very constrained in their ability to live a productive life. And I think that we are going to see, I think that we are not through the thick of this yet. Yeah. I think we've got a lot more explosions I agree. still to come. It's to me, it's almost like the Phoenix, you know, the Phoenix, how, yeah, even though it's a mythological, you, you know, the concept of that, of right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's rising from the ashes. Right. But the Phoenix obliterates itself before that happens. And yeah. I'm not saying we should like nuke humanity or yeah. anything, but like, yeah, that concept of, um, how death and rebirth is just such a natural cycle and that that's definitely going to happen regarding, you know, shifting powers. And um, we're living in this very interesting time where we're seeing financial, societal, and spiritual, con like, paradigms start to be questioned heavily. They're going under so much scrutiny. People are not satisfied with what, what they are, all of these things together. And in that, people are finding their power because of struggle because of the frustration, because of the pain that they're feeling when, you know, they realize that the world and the paradigm that they've been born into is not a very natural one. It's one that's been kind of disconnected from the humanness, the raw human experience, which requires this self-responsibility and this action on your personal part for yourself and for the people that are around you, like a f big family, like a big tribe. And most of the time when I'm going out in public, I don't feel like a lot of those people are connecting on that same level. And when I do, because I, I, I always listen to my heart when I go out networking with people or whatever, like I know the people, I feel it in my being straight away. If that person is open to that type of tribal family-like connection, human family connection i go and I, I talk to them straight away and right then and there i feel it and they feel it too it's like this person is willing to open up to a level that is uncommon and for a lot of people that's scary because they don't you know but um it's not part of their daily routine no right because most of us kind of we get in our we get in a habit because it's very insulating. Right. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And then you you come in and you shake up, shake their stuff up, and at first it's like, whoa, <laughs> what's happening? And then you adapt to it. And one of my um, my teachers he called it buffering, and how 
uh, he used like energy fields as an example. So think of like, for instance, you and I were sitting here. Imagine we're sitting in these orbs of energy. And I don't have to imagine it. Right. Yeah. You're. We are. Right. So think of the as if it was a fluid. Think of the fluid dynamics, the buoyancy, the density, the the volume, mass, all of it, and how by walking through an energy field or to to walk through another person's you know being how much stuff is going to get shaken up and especially when you focus that when you focus your energy on a person in a conversation or when you're working with them whatever it might be that is just amplified even more so and the concept of buffering is when you sit in that field for long enough that the chaos settles and you're really able to just kind of like observe everything that's there and uh have you ever been in a class and i'm sure you have and you're just sitting there and after like two hours you're just like i don't even know what this guy's saying anymore like i can't focus right the brain needs these markers to basically retain more information so for instance they say like go on a walk right but that's really just like a checkpoint chronologically for the brain to be like ah this happened so now then i learn this and I can go back to that walk and somehow like pick that out of the subconscious more efficiently. It's like files and folders in a computer. And I forget exactly where I was going with that. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I think it speaks basically to the fact that we are we are electrical entities, mm -hmm. right? When we die, it's not our heart hasn't gone missing, right? We haven't lost an organ. We have, all our blood's not hopefully on the floor, right? We, when we die, what's no longer measurable at the moment of death is the electricity that was running the human body. Yeah. I remember being at a conference many, I think it was like, I wanna say it was 99, it was the same year. It was the same conference that I walked across fire. Mm. It was a fun conference. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, they were kind of prepping us for the fire walk. This one person in particular was prepping us for, you know, the fire walk that would come in 45 minutes or whatever. Sure. He was talking about, he was talking about all the different kinds of energy, cosmic energy, solar energy, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it goes cosmic energy and then it goes human energy. Mm. And then solar and so on down the line, right? right? Where the I think we're the second highest energy yeah. that exists. And he was so you know fire is way down at the bottom of the barrel, right? Like so because we're such an enormously stronger energy than fire, fire theoretically shouldn't be able to hurt us, right? Right? We we know that certainly it does, yeah. Um, but in any case when he was putting up diagrams of the spine and, you know, so he putting up diagrams of the spine and the nervous system and all this stuff. And it dawned on me, I'm like, damn, that looks like an antenna. Right. Yep. I mean, if you think about it, so I, sometime after the conference, I sent a picture to one of my friends and I was like, dude, doesn't this look like a an antenna to you? And he goes, no, Sarge, an antenna would have like, a bulb over here and a bulb over here. And I'm like, dude, lobes. 
<laughs> we yeah. have a right and a left. Like, I don't know how much more you can make this look yeah. like an antenna, but that's not your argument. Right. <laughs> right. Like, we are meant to be communicating with each other on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. And I like, um, I always go back to my my mother and eventually I read the Gene All series of books. So mm-hmm. she wrote Clan of the Cave Bear and the Mammoth Hunters and all oh, of yeah. this stuff. She was, I think I think the right word is a botanist. Yeah. Um, and so she had these incredible descriptions of like the flora mm. present during those times. Um, and the two main characters were Isla and John Dar, as if I recall correctly. And they were the first two humans who kind of developed language. They tamed horses mm. and rode them. You know, they were kind of like missing linkish. But they were so they developed language. And what they what never ever occurred in any of those books was a lie. Hmm. You couldn't lie. <laughs> and you couldn't lie. Because we'd relied so heavily on body posture Mm. that if your mouth said something, your body posture instantly gave it away. Mm. So they could try to obscure the truth, but they could never tell a a lie. And we've gotten so far away from that at this point. It's become a very cerebral thing. We don't take into account someone's posture. Right. We don't look for those telltale signs that let us know if someone's being truthful with us or lying. So I'm, I'm in a neurolinguistic programming course right now, and that is a very interesting field. And they don't, you're going to find some people in NLP that are out there and they're like, oh yeah, you can figure out where a person's thinking from, what they're thinking. Like, I don't know if that's, that's truly possible. I haven't experienced that. And all of my teachers are like, it's really just like a foundation for kind of whatever you want to do with it. But there are these definite telltale signs when somebody is, for instance, uncertain of something, obscuring obscuring a message, telling a half-truth, telling a lie. And it, it takes an incredible amount of presence at this point. Like, you have to focus on those things and be educated on those things. But, like, in that book, right, in, like, this very natural state, it's, like, it's just so clear as day. <laughs> like, when yeah. someone's out yeah. of alignment. <laughs> I, I, that was one of the major things I took away from that book was, oh, my God, without language, there's no lying. Yeah. It's really, it's an interesting, I think it's a really interesting concept. Do you, do you remember my friend Brian? Yeah. Yeah, so he he's obsessed with body language, like, obsessed with it and how to self-regulate different parts of his nervous system through his body movement, through um, learning how to, in his words, move energy through his body, but also do the physical movements that facilitate that movement. And it's interesting because for me, I, I can feel the energy in my body and I can bend it when I'm sitting completely still when I use physical movement to follow that movement, it becomes even more powerful. But the, the, some of the things that he wants to explore is just so interesting. So for instance, like when you're having a conversation, we did this experiment where we held hands right next to each other's faces like this. Mm -hmm. And when we had the conversation, it was like, there was something profound that changed 
and we kept exploring with like these little shifts that we would do when we would like talk or hang out and like um you know sometimes we just like make primal noises but there's something to this that is so beautiful i just i always invite people like just do your raw human stuff like don't worry about what people are going to think it's okay to be politically correct in the right circumstance but like when you're by yourself when you're with people you love you should have the freedom to explore these very like raw human feelings and move your body in like these weird ways and we're all so conditioned to be politically correct even when we're alone that it ends up not getting expressed and we sort of you know just like with the kids that you work with they lose this functionality that that is so innate and we, we all have access to it and we just kind of choose not to do that consciously or unconsciously <laughs> some of both <laughs> yeah well it's uncomfortable right yeah. it's it it takes you to some uncomfortable places it does but it it also like if you never get out of your comfort zone you're not going to go to all the phenomenal places that you can go right It's nine o'clock. <laughs> I think it's time we wrap this up. All right. So I guess I will leave with the parting statement that um, the body is endowed. This is George Goodhart, who is a chiropractor, and I always loved this quote. The body is endowed with a remarkable healing potential, and all it takes is your hand and your ability to to manipulate the person to bring that potential to being mm. <laughs> that's i butchered it a little bit but that's the gist of that's it. the gist of it it's yeah. to it, me the the thing that that reminds me of is being chiseled into whatever you're meant to be yeah just one pick at a time well I appreciate the time, to, the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Same here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, for everyone listening, for everyone watching, thank you for, if you stuck through to the end, you're a trooper. I mean, this is <laughs> like, I think we were doing this for at least two, two and a half hours. So yeah. thank you for being here with us and, you know, listening to this conversation so much and uh, grateful for all of you so incredibly deeply. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time. <laughs>